Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A troubled relationship between England and Ireland predates the Tudors. Following the Norman Conquest, Norman barons sought to conquer Ireland and succeeded in expelling Gaelic-Irish families from large areas in the south and southeast. One area on the east coast, which includes present-day Dublin, became known as the Pale, meaning the boundary or the fence, and it was here that an English government sat. However, despite the presence of the English, the Gaelic-Irish maintained their own laws and customs and were never admitted as subjects of the crown. This meant that Ireland was not a realm, but a lordship. Then during the rule of the Plantagenet kings, former Norman barons adopted Gaelic language and culture and began to carve out fiefdoms for themselves. The families, the Fitzgeralds, the Burks, the Butlers, enforced their own laws and raised their own armed forces, achieving a high degree of independence. In the 14th and 15th centuries, it was to these Norman-come-Gaelic-Irish families that English monarchs delegated the government of Ireland and the Pale. And while the king was Lord of Ireland, in name at least, it was the Lord Deputy of Ireland who was the chief of the administration. This title was held by the Fitzgeralds. It's into this background, this milieu, that Henry VII and his heirs were cast. And let's be clear, the Tudors knew very little about this faraway place. In fact, during the 118 years of Tudor rule, not one of its monarchs ever set foot in Ireland. And yet, the history of the Tudor monarchy cannot fully be told without understanding its relations with the Emerald Isle. What were the aims of the Tudors in Ireland? What challenges did they face in realising them? And what should we make of their behaviour? My guest today to explore these questions is Christopher McGinn, Professor of History at Fordham University in New York, whose research is concerned with British and Irish history, with a particular focus on the relationship between England and Ireland in the Tudor period. He's the author and co-author of many books and articles, including The Making of the British Isles, The State of Britain and Ireland, 1450 to 1660, and William Sissel, Ireland and the Tudor State. I'm especially delighted to welcome Professor McGinn because the question of the Tudors in Ireland has been one that listeners have asked for again and again. So today we're going to get an overview of the relationship between the Tudor monarchs and the Irish. 
Thurston McGinn, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you for having me. Today we're very much doing the not just part of the Tudors because we're thinking about the relationship between the Tudors and the entire country of Ireland. And I suppose we need to start at the very beginning of the Tudor period in 1485 with Henry Tudor coming to the throne because he's overthrown Richard III at Bosworth. Now, there's a sense that he desperately needed to consolidate his power. And yet, your work suggests that his attempts at relationship building with the Lord Deputy of Ireland, Gerald Fitzgerald, failed spectacularly. Can you tell us about these early years and why you think this relationship didn't work? First and foremost, the Tudors were hardly known in England, as we know. We spend these podcasts and all this time talking about Tudors, right? In all of our work, it's Tudor. But Henry VII, he wanted to bury that name. It was not a royal name. It was an obscure Welsh dynasty that he was a part of. So he had difficulty in England establishing who he was. In Ireland, he was virtually unknown. Ireland was a Yorkist stronghold. And as we know, Henry VII identified deliberately with the Lancastrians, even though there is the great union of the houses through his marriage, he identified with the continuity of the House of Lancaster. So in Ireland, it's very, very telling. There is a reference in the Irish in the Gaelic Annals shortly after the Battle of Bosworth Field. And they refer to Henry VII, not as Henry, not as the king, but as the son of the Welshman. And he's not even given a name. So I think if we were to cast our minds back or to put ourselves in the place of 1485 in an outlying district like Ireland, I think that Henry VII's chances did not look good. That makes a lot of sense. And that's a really helpful reminder of what it meant to be a usurping king. Now, he appointed Sir Richard Edgecombe in an alternative bid to control Ireland. And we've got this account from Edgecombe of his time there. What can we learn from Richard Edgecombe, who was a controller of the royal household, a member of the King's Council? What can we learn from him about the challenges that were facing Henry VII when it came to the Irish? Yeah, Edgecombe is fascinating in his journey to Ireland because he has a written account of it. And that is the first Tudor, properly Tudor account of Ireland from the Tudor period. And Edgecombe, when he comes over, I think it was important because he was the king's man. He was a man of the household, as you say. He was a stalwart Tudor, Henry VII supporter. So by his very presence in Ireland, this new king meant business. And what Edgecombe tried to do was to bind over the English lords of Ireland. And we can come back to our terminology, which makes this period so very difficult because we're really dealing with two kinds of people, two kinds of inhabitants in early Tudor Ireland. But what Edgecombe wanted to do was to secure the loyalty, ideally through the famous bonds of recognizance, almost avant la lettre, as we hear about this later in Henry VII's reign, he tries to use these to bind over the English of Ireland to Henry VII's cause. And he's largely successful. He's not driven away. He manages to get promises, though he does not get the bonds of recognizance as he hoped he would. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. This is 1488. This is after the Battle of Stoke. So this is after the Simnel Pretender conspiracy, the beginning of a more normalized pattern that Henry VII is not going to intervene with a huge military force, but he's showing that Ireland is part of his ancient inheritance. So from Henry VII's perspective, and my students often ask me this, why bother? 
why not just let it go? I mean, I say again and again in my books that Henry VII and the Tudors broadly did not know very much about Ireland, weren't that interested. Well, those things are true, but we have to put ourselves in the position of kings and later queens of England, who their royal inheritance meant everything. It was bound up in their very regality and who they were. So to give up a territorial possession that was your natural inheritance was not on the table. And you mentioned there the English families in Ireland. Should we explain what we mean by that? This is a community. This is a group of people, men and women, who identified as the English of Ireland. That's how they understood themselves. In modern times, with modern nation states, one would think that to be English or to be British nowadays, one has to be born within the UK. And that is a modern construct. One could be English and born in Calais. For example, the same way one could be English and born in Dublin. And this community is descended from the settlers, the English and Welsh settlers who came to Ireland in the decades after what the Tudors regarded, we can come back to this, as the conquest with a definite article and a capital C. That is the conquest of Ireland in the 12th century by Henry II. So we're going into the medieval period here. But that mattered for the Tudors because this was the origin point of their inheritance and it was brought to them justly through conquest. And I was fascinated to learn from your work about what you call discovery and reform with regard to Henry VII's policy towards Ireland. Can you explain these ideas for us and how they should have served Henry? Right. I think we need to understand them as being interrelated, but two separate concepts here. The first of discovery, Henry VII knew very little about Ireland. Henry VIII knew very little about Ireland. And it's important that none of the Tudors ever put foot in Ireland. Their children didn't go there. They did not have immediate relations. As we know, the Tudor gene pool isn't great. So there weren't loads of uncles and cousins and aunts and things. But they have no direct experience of this territory that they lay claim to. So before they could do anything with it, they had to learn about it. And fortunately for us as historians, we get the written word. So discovery is this process whereby the Tudors, particularly Henry VII and Henry VIII, had to learn about a place that they had no natural affinity to. You have to remember the old Duke of York from the Wars of the Roses, he had been to Ireland. He had been Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. And Edward IV, he owned an Irish smock, for example. He had been to Waterford, not so the Tudors. So they had to learn about this place. So it's a process of discovery, very much. Reform now, this is very much a political concept. I mentioned the conquest before, and as it was understood in the early Tudor period, and even in the later Tudor period, the English colony of Ireland, the English of Ireland, had reached their zenith in the late 13th century, round about, say, 1300. That was the top. And their recollection of this period and their understanding of this earlier period, everything was great. It was a pristine state where Ireland was English and every, it was profitable to the crown and so forth. But then a decay had set in. So the idea of reform is in the early modern sense of the word, as in like Martin Luther's Reformation, right? In the early modern mind, they could not really cast very far into the future. They were on messianic time. So they look backward for the future, if you understand. So it's kind of nostalgia, but they wanted to restore what they firmly believed to be a pristine state. So reform 
was this idea originating from the English of Ireland that the kings of England and later queens were duty-bound to their subjects in Ireland to intervene and reform the lordship later kingdom to its previous heights. So two different concepts, but reform is quite complicated because reform is one of those words in English that's very it can mean almost anything, can't it? If you go into a meeting and say, I'm going to reform things here, as a modern person, you aren't really saying that I want to make the meeting the way it used to be, right? You want to maybe fix it. And it does have something of that connotation, but in the early Tudor period, to be sure, it meant to take Ireland back to the 13th century when things were great. And it was only one person's responsibility to do that, and it was the monarch of England. Yes, you're absolutely right. And you've really nailed this difficult question about why something is considered worthy if it's old rather than new in this period. Reform is to reform it, to go back to what it was rather than to create something new. So could you tell me a bit about Sir Edward Poynes and whether you think we should regard his actions as evidence of discovery and reform? In some ways with Poynes, it was neither like Edgecombe, he was a stalwart, he was a supporter of this new house of Tudor. But Poynings was in the muscle end of the family. He was the enforcer, if you will. And crucially, he had been at the English Pale of Calais. And he is the one who calls the English Pale of Ireland. He's the one who coins that phrase. And he seems to have just brought what he saw in France to Ireland and regarded it as something that was very similar. Poynings was not a thinker, so far as we know. He was not a writer, so far as we know. So I don't know how much he was interested in communicating what he found or what he discovered in Ireland to his master in England, nor was he someone who was given the necessary military strength, because this is a key word with reform. For a long time, for decades in Irish historiography, we thought that reform was synonymous with the conciliatory attitude by Englishmen toward Ireland. So, and indeed later Thomas Cromwell talks about reform or conquest. But these words are really very similar in the period. So reform always had an element, really the central element was a massive military royal showing of power. So Poynings, his army numbers in the hundreds, not the thousands necessary to reform Ireland. So his was very much a holding operation. And I think that he and Henry VII almost accidentally learned about Ireland. They discovered it really by mistake, by learning the limits of military power when you only send over a few hundred men. Poynings also famously clashed with the Eighth Earl of Kildare, the Great Earl. He has him arrested, and he has Kildare arrested on charges of treason because Kildare is talking to O'Hanlon and others of the king's Irish enemies. This was something that Kildare had to do on a regular basis, but Poynings, an Englishman who had been stationed in France, did not know these nuances and therefore arrested Kildare for communicating with the enemy. But for someone like Kildare, the enemy was native to the place, so you had to talk to them. So these are the Irish, or sometimes as we call them now, the Gaelic Irish, a different population group than what we've discussed thus far. So overall, what should we make of Henry VII's interactions with Ireland and these deputies that he sends and this attempt to find out information and to try and take it back to this kind of golden age of post-conquest. He doesn't get very far with that latter aim, but he does stabilise the situation. Perhaps this is something we can read more broadly into Henry VII and his successes. 
It's stabilization. Ireland could have gone either way. I mean, as I say, it was a Yorkist stronghold. We have two pretenders. We have Lambert Simnel and later Perkin Warbeck famously flirting with Ireland in this period. And Henry VII makes Ireland safe for England, but does not get very far in terms of national, what is sometimes referred to increasingly by the Tudor period, general reformation. The idea that the entire island would be brought under his control. So we can take a dim view of Henry VII. By the end of Henry VII's reign, Ireland as an island, as a country, if you will, as the lordship, as the English thought of it, was not any more closely governed than it had been earlier. But he does consolidate his own power and Tudor rule through the Earl of Kildare in the English Pale and its surrounding territories. Henry VII does, however, in the early 16th century, he toys with the idea of going to Ireland in person. There is a famous discussion held in his council where he says, begin to prepare the ships and to requisition goods. He's going to go over personally to Ireland, but it doesn't happen. So let's move forward to the reign of Henry VIII. And you have suggested that the extension of Tudor rule reached unprecedented levels of brutality and warfare. So what was happening? Why had relations become so bloody? This is a bit of a question. There is a theory within Irish historiography that the Tudor period is the beginning of an age of atrocity, that it's a sharp increase in violence. It's just hard to know whether this extension of Tudor rule that you mentioned was the cause of that, or are we just getting better information that makes it look like it's more violent? The later Middle Ages, as I'm sure you're aware, is sparsely documented or more sparsely documented than the Tudor period. So it may be a trick of the evidence. Certainly in Henry VIII's reign, we see a great leap forward, an extension of Tudor rule. Because of the king's personality, Henry VIII, as we know, was this great imperious king, and he wanted to be known as a great king. And Ireland, I think, rankled with him. His sights were set on France, as we know, and the glories of the Hundred Years' War and recreating that. Ireland was not a priority. But he does, from time to time, toy with going there. There is a belief at the start of his reign that in 1513 that Henry VIII might go himself to Ireland. He sends the Earl of Surrey on a royal expedition as his right-hand man, as Lord Lieutenant again, in 1520. And then, as everything else in Henry VIII's reign, the pivotal decade is the 1530s. Once you have the break with Rome, you cannot have this dangling territory of an uncertain relationship to the crown. This demands a greater centralization. It demands a clearer relationship. Another problem here, too, is that in addition to conquest, I mentioned the conquest of the 12th century. That conquest in the later Middle Ages was also predicated upon a papal grant of the island of Ireland to Henry II. So when Henry VIII breaks from Rome, that calls that into question. So Henry VIII, his reign obviously is pivotal, and it certainly sees a much closer engagement by the crown in Ireland and then we can talk about the Kildare Rebellion, if you like, which is in many ways a response to that engagement. The destruction of the House of Kildare really forces Henry VIII to think completely differently about Ireland and to bring it more closely into line with conditions in England. Would it be fair to say that we can kind of discern something of a personal role of Henry VIII in England's affairs with Ireland when we get into the Kildare affair? Yes. And I think this is true of all of the Tudor monarchs. Theirs was a personal monarchy. We know this. And I think that in some respects, over the last hundred years in the historiography, we've really gotten too clever by half that we've 
really poured ourselves into the evidence. And sometimes we can put too much emphasis on the Thomas Cromwells or the William Cecils of the Tudor period. And they're very important. But at the end of the day, this is an absolute monarchy. And yes, we can quibble about the power of parliament and constitution and things like this. But when decisions are made, it has to be by the crown. And that becomes part of his own idiosyncratic personality. And Ireland features in this that he toys with the idea of sending overwhelming force. I have uncovered evidence where he is even, to save face, put out the rumor that there is a massive English army coming, even though he has no intention of doing that. He has to be seen to be so involved. So Henry VIII is crucial in all of these things. And in particular, after the Kildare Rebellion, when that house is destroyed, we see a pivot in Tudor policy towards something that we as modern historians call surrender and regrand. And this is when native Gaelic lords, who are never quite English subjects, come before Henry in England and kneel before him and accept English titles at his hands. This is directly feeding into the king's ego and to the personal nature of his monarchy. So in many respects, I think there's a kind of a broader point here we should make about the Tudor period, and this is reflected in the historiography lately, of putting the monarchs back, that they did not do the day-to-day -day governing of their kingdoms, but their ideas about things mattered. Their personal relationships mattered, and Henry VIII is emblematic of that more than anyone else. I couldn't agree more. So... Could you just explain, in a nutshell, as it were, what happened in the Kildare Rebellion? And then we can perhaps talk a little bit more about this idea of surrender and regrant. Yeah, the Kildare Rebellion, for centuries, Irish nationalist historians viewed it as Ireland's first religious crusade. It was a Catholic rebellion fought by someone who regarded himself as Irish. And this is now the 10th Earl of Kildare, Silken Thomas, as he's known to history. Not the 8th Earl we discussed before, not the ninth Earl, his son, but the 10th Earl, his son. However, revisionist history has argued that the Kildare Rebellion was a miscalculation. And that argument can certainly be made that we mentioned the 8th Earl earlier and his interactions with Henry VII. He could drive a very hard bargain with Edgecombe, for example. He could not enter into a bond of recognizance. And Henry VII backs off. Even after the 8th Earl of Kildare crowns a rival king, Lambert Simnel, in Dublin, Henry VII backs off. He allows Kildare to live. And the revisionist argument is that the Kildare Rebellion was another bluff. It was an effort to show Henry VIII how powerful the House of Kildare was and that Ireland could not be governed without them. But it was a bad miscalculation because Henry VIII was not Henry VII. The conditions of the 1530s were not the 1480s. Henry VIII had broken from Rome. Famously, Charles V had assembled an army between 10 and 15,000 men strong, and Henry VIII's court did not know that these men were bound for the Mediterranean. They thought they were bound for Ireland. And the 10th Earl of Kildare did send out emissaries to the Holy Roman Emperor. So Henry VIII did not take any chances. So when the Kildares rebelled, they were destroyed, and the house was uprooted, creating this power vacuum at the heart of the pale that needed to be replaced. And the decision was made to have the Earls of Kildare replaced by Englishmen, soldiers. But that was very expensive business. And it was only by 1540, by the dispatch of another courtier, a man called Anthony St. Ledger, a gentleman from Kent. And we really know very little about St. Ledger's ideas about things prior to coming to Ireland, but he really takes to the place. He seems to understand it very well. And he is central to bringing about this new policy, and I think we can call it that, whereby 
Irishmen, not to be confused with the Englishmen of the pale we discussed before, but Irishmen, these are the O'Neills, the O'Donnells, the McGuinnesses, the Maguires, all of these people, again, not quite English subjects. And their relationship constitutionally to the crown of England was that they were the king's, quote, Irish enemies. They were non-subjects. They could not avail of English law. And what's interesting here, again, we mentioned the power of the crown. Henry VIII could never stand for this. It didn't make any sense in the royal mind. How could people living in his lordship be enemies? So Henry VIII, much like Richard II in a different age, he quietly begins to refer to them, but consistently, as rebels, our Irish rebels. So as a way of somehow like reconciling all of this and not costing the crown much money, St. Ledger offers to broker submissions by these great and powerful autonomous Gaelic lords, Irish lords, and the most powerful of them are meant to come to England, to come before Henry VIII, and they receive English earldoms and their lands submitted back to them, hence the regrant bit. So they surrender their power, they surrender their land, and their lands are regranted to them under a feudal charter, under English law, under letters patent by Henry VIII. So there's very much a sense there that it is theirs because Henry's given it to them. To my mind, this looks like fairly manipulative statecraft, but quite a lot of historians have thought of this as conciliatory. I wonder what you think, and I also wonder what you think the Irish nobility made of it. This is really the question that brought me into the study of this period in the first place. As someone who would have been raised as an Irish nationalist, how are we to account for the great O'Neill, Con Barthoff? Even his name is jarring to English ears. This is a great lord, king, who comes to Henry VIII and he submits and he's dressed as an Englishman and he's given the title of Earl of Tyrone and he has to sacrifice his own name. He was, in English, the O'Neill, but he has to give this up now. So for a long time, Irish nationalist historians interpreted it the way that you just said, that it was a manipulative piece of statecraft on the part of Henry VIII and that these Irish lords went into this knowing what was happening, and they thought that this was a way of just appeasing Henry VIII, they would go home and continue to live as they had always lived. But I would disagree with that. If you look at the Irish annals, which describe these men when they come home, they have a familiar refrain that they were treated with great honor. And I think these men were honorable men. They thought of themselves as lords, not as Irishmen, as modern people would, as modern citizens or something, betraying their country. They saw themselves submitting to a power that was in every magnitude greater than theirs. Con Bafalco knew would have gone to Greenwich. They would have gone to Hampton Court. These are men who did not live in such splendor. They may have seen the Whitehall mural. Henry VIII was a powerful individual. So for him to treat them handsomely and to reward them and to give them titles, I think that they did this willingly. It may have been selfishly that they wanted to increase their own power, but I think that they went at this in good faith, and I think Henry VIII did too. It's so interesting that you gave that answer, because when I was thinking about who was being manipulative, I wasn't at all thinking it was the Irish Lords. I was thinking it was Henry VIII. But you said at the end there, you think that he's doing it in good faith as well. I do. I do. Many of the Lords come over in 1541, 42, 43 and Henry VIII is now a mature sovereign. He has his heir. He's shortly to go to war with France again and with Scotland again. After 1543, he has Scottish prisoners, the assured lords at court. For him to parade these Irishmen in, these greatest Irishmen, these wild Irishmen who had never obeyed any English king, this is 
increasing Henry VIII's power and his majesty. At a very practical level, many of these lords, these Irish lords, send over troops for Henry VIII's armies in France and in Scotland. So I think that this is a way of Henry VIII increasing his power and his own regality. Because another component of this too, which I neglected to mention, was that St. Ledger is also instrumental in pushing through the Parliament of Ireland, the Act for Kingly Title. And the Act for Kingly Title transforms Ireland from some ambiguous lordship, which was odd, into a kingdom with Henry VIII as king. But even in that, if we look at the legislation was drawn up and sent over to Henry VIII, and one would think, knowing Henry, knowing his nature, that by receiving this legislation, he would be chuffed to find out that now I am king of another kingdom. But he's actually horrified because it is the legislation looks like it's the Parliament of Ireland conferring this upon him. And that he cannot have. He is king of Ireland. He has always been king of Ireland, he says. He's just not chosen to take the title. And what does the kingship of Ireland derive from? The conquest. He also thinks he always had been the supreme head of the church. <laughs> it's the very same, Susanna. It's the very same. Can we think about then the English Reformation and what, how we should interpret that in explaining England's relations with Ireland? Yeah, this is something that really just fails to launch entirely. So I've been giving you the kind of the secular end of this here, but there is obviously a religious end of it too, that the Reformation legislation is introduced in Ireland through the Irish Parliament or the Parliament of Ireland in the 1530s. And when all of these Gaelic lords submit to Henry VIII, they have to abjure papal authority. Now, this worked on two levels. The one level is present papal authority, but at this other ancient level was that ancient papal grant that I've mentioned before. Irishmen had often trotted this out to say that the Pope in Rome controls the faith, the sovereignty, if you will, of Ireland. So in surrender and regret, there is a religious component built in. That said, there is no discernible appetite for the introduction of a bibliocentric religion as Henry VIII begins to introduce in England. Language itself is going to be a real problem when you're going to concentrate on Bibles and the majority of the population of Ireland does not speak English. On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the medieval age. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? Using science to identify our buried ancestors. Genetic signatures found in present-day Ashkenazi Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found in these individuals. And reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles. I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion. I'm Matt Lewis, and every Tuesday and Friday you can join me to travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and to get under the skins of the ones you have. Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now we ought to jump forward, I suppose, to Elizabeth and as someone who works on the period, I was excited to read about your discovery of a previously unknown manuscript. You've called it the Hatfield Compendium. So tell us about this, how you came across it and what insights it provides into Elizabeth's relations with Ireland. Is she continuing her grandfather or her father's approaches? Well, there's a lot in this and there's a lot in that manuscript. The manuscript resides in Hatfield House. So it is a William Cecil owned manuscript. In other words, somehow it came into his possession, and we don't quite know how or why, but the manuscript was drawn up, we think, for Anthony St. Ledger in 1539, and it's a compendium of a whole series of information about Ireland dating back to the second half of the 15th century. But what is important about the Hatfield Compendium is that who owned it? Seemingly William Cecil. And Cecil becomes Elizabeth's man on Ireland. But ironically, he too doesn't go there either. So Elizabeth never knows much about the place. She knows about as much as her father did. Ireland was hers. She wanted to reform it. She did not want to pay for it. She softens a few things, whereas Henry VIII insisted, for example, in Surrender and Regrant, that these submitting Irishmen be made English, that they become Englishmen, kind of through a constitutional alchemy they would become constitutionally Englishmen. So the idea of an Irishman was a savage or a wild person of the woods. You could not have under Henry VIII Irish subjects. You had to have English subjects in Ireland, and that included people who were native Irish. Under Elizabeth, she drops this idea. She is content to refer to her subjects in England and her Irish subjects equally, she says. But really, it's William Cecil he is the man who gathers information on Ireland, and he seems to have gathered it and then communicates it to Elizabeth. It's a very Tudor way of information gathering, particularly on Henry VIII and Elizabeth. They want bullet points. They want things distilled for them. They are not going to spend their nights reading and poring over information. That was someone like Thomas Cromwell's job and later someone like William Cecil's job. And he serves that purpose for Elizabeth I. And as a source... For you as a historian, 
What sort of challenges does it pose? Because it's been prepared with that agenda in mind. It creates all sorts of problems. We didn't know how to refer to it, myself and my former mentor, Professor Ellis, who wrote the book, The Tudor Discovery of Ireland, with me. We didn't really know what to make of it. And it took years to kind of figure it out because it's a dossier. It's a compendium, as I call it. But it's made up of all these different parts. And some of the parts are much older, going back to the 15th century. Some parts of it are more complete editions of works that we had previously known. Other parts are missing. They start and then they stop. So it also speaks more broadly, I suppose, to the fact that the Tudors were not forward-looking. They were backward-looking. And they would rely upon this older information and they keep recycling it again and again. So there's a famous document at the start of the Hatfield Compendium called The Description of the Power of Irishmen. And it's a military breakdown of all the troops that every Irish chief in the country, every Irish lord had at his disposal. We know for a fact, or we're really pretty certain that this was written up in about 1494. That document continues to appear in Elizabeth's reign, just with the same numbers, even though it's nearly 100 years out of date. So it speaks to this kind of Tudor time war that we go on and on. And that can be tiresome for the modern historian, I can tell you. But someone like Cecil and someone like Elizabeth, they had one mind in that they were conservative and backward looking. And they didn't want to try anything new. So that is something that is a real feature of the Elizabethan reign that I think we need to consider. And that's what that book tried to do to show the enduring importance of this earlier, of this medieval, the later medieval way of thinking about Ireland, even into the later 16th century. One interesting case is the entanglement of Sean O'Neill with the Earl of Sussex, who's the Lord Deputy of Ireland. And it's particularly interesting in illustrating Elizabeth's relations with Ireland. So I wonder if you could tell this story, outline it at least, and your take on how it illustrates Elizabeth's approach. Yeah, I mean, it really captures so much. Growing up, he was this hero figure, right? This was a man who resisted Tudor rule tooth and nail. This was someone who refused to speak the English language because it gave him a headache. The words in his mouth sounded wrong and it they sounded wrong in his ear. So this was a man who could be held up as the Irishman's Irishman, right? But when we look at Shane O'Neill, he was violent, he was powerful. So he was all of these things of a hero warrior in many respects. But he also wanted an English earldom. He had to have an English earldom. And it is his idea, ultimately, after tangling with Elizabeth's governor of Ireland, the Earl of Sussex, to go before Elizabeth himself, to plead his case before her. And he does in this fascinating scene in the early 1560s, he goes to the Elizabethan court and here is this proud, powerful Irishman. And he too makes a howling confession at the feet of Elizabeth I. And I think this gives us an idea of the power that Elizabeth had at the mess in New York here, they had this grace, art and majesty in Renaissance England, and they had all these wonderful portraits, and it was wonderful. But as an Irish historian, looking at this, all I could think of was Shane O'Neill and the fear he must have felt before the queen and her court. He was assiduous in his pursuit of this earldom. If he didn't get hold of it, it would go to one of his O'Neill rivals, and this would spell his doom. So Shane O'Neill is emblematic of a lot of things. I think it shows us what could have been. I think that Elizabeth wanted to try to accommodate this man. I think that he wanted to accommodate himself with Elizabeth. 
But the failure of that, because ultimately Shane O'Neill is also destroyed, and we have the first major military confrontation in Ireland of Elizabeth's reign is with Shane O'Neill. And Elizabeth's forces find it very difficult, really impossible. They are not the ones who kill Shane O'Neill. It is his rivals in Ireland that actually kill him and cut his head off and send it to Dublin Castle to adorn its exterior. But Elizabeth and Shane O'Neill is very interesting. I mean, it is emblematic of how far surrender and regrant had come, how it had not completely withered. And had that gone differently, I made the argument before, though it's hard to make the argument, that Shane O'Neill's failure at court, his failure to secure the earldom that he thought was his right as the oldest son of Con Bafafonio, who we mentioned earlier, who had gone before Henry VIII, his failure there, I think, really sours relations with the Gaelic lords and the Tudors, that it's never quite the same thereafter. So the 1560s are really important in that regard. So interesting. You've opened up all sorts of thoughts. So there's a sense that whilst he can be held up as this great nationalist figure, actually he's locating some of his honour in recognition by the English, and that in trying to secure that, it's actually part of a power play between him and his other relatives and contemporaries in Ireland. And there's also the dimension at court, because Shane O'Neill was favoured by the Earl of Leicester, who was often at odds with the Earl of Sussex. So you have a court dynamic there where Shane is being used as an instrument to undermine the reputation, in this case, of Sussex by his rival. And then you have Cecil, who was very much in the middle, trying to broker all of this there. Elizabeth is sometimes interested in Ireland. When it touches her honor, she's sometimes interested, but oftentimes she isn't. So depending on how we look at her, it can be a terrible indictment of Elizabeth for allowing a kingdom to be governed like this through Cecil, through a governor. There's a remove of a remove of a remove. And this becomes problematic as the century wears on. One thing your work does is it really highlights how much is not known about the Tudor rule of Ireland, and particularly because the experiences of families and regions disrupt the broader picture. I wonder if you'd like to illustrate this point by telling the story of the O'Rourke family. The O'Rourkes from the northwest of Ireland, this was a Gaelic stronghold. It had never been touched by English settlement. When we think back to the 12th century conquest of Ireland and the English settlement in Ireland in the hundred years thereafter, it's the northwest that is not touched by English settlements. We get kind of a purely Gaelic region of the country. And it really isn't until the 1560s and after that we get the gradual and steady encroachment of Elizabethan power into that region. And it's really fascinating to see how that part of the country is ultimately shired. The English only knew how to do things one way, and it was the way of the southeast of England. And to bring civility to a place, you had to have that basic unit of administrative government, which was the shire or the county. After 1569, we get these what I call Elizabethan shires. These are shires which are superimposed onto Gaelic lordships, like the O'Rourke lordship or the O'Reilly lordship. But as you will know from understanding Tudor England, a shire needs a sheriff. A shire needs a county gentry. And I think this is the real missed opportunity under Elizabeth and the Tudors broadly. Had they been able to bring in the native Irish clans, for lack of a better word, the native Irish families to serve as English-style gentry, 
you would have had an agreed extension of Tudor authority in Ireland without so much resistance. I know this is counterfactual, but we see again and again, whether it be the O'Reillys in particular, they want to be, they're raising their hand constantly to be sheriff. They wanted to be sheriff, even though they didn't speak English and didn't know much about English common law. So the O'Rourke's are an example where it goes spectacularly wrong. Um, it was a reach for the Elizabethans, and that becomes the epicenter of the denouement of the Elizabethan and Tudor period. And that's the Nine Years' War, which has its roots in the northwest of Ireland, seemingly caused because of this encroachment and the superimposing of English-style counties, and then the government's decision to put Englishmen, soldiers, as sheriffs, not members of the county community. It's very difficult in Ireland when you don't have an English community to self-govern. And then you put soldiers in who are aliens, and this can be provocative. And herein we have this cycle of violence that really amps up in Elizabeth's reign. So the Nine Years' War in Ireland is from 1594 to 1603. is a huge conflict. It's the largest conflict fought by the English under Elizabeth. So we should know more about it. Can you explain what the crown was trying to achieve as its sort of final victory? Yeah, and I think we can tie this back into some of the points I made earlier. At the height of the Nine Years' War, when Elizabeth sends the famous Earl of Essex over, she banishes, half banishes him from court and sends him, as many would have thought, to his doom in Ireland. But she sends him over with an absolutely massive army, the largest army to leave England since Henry VIII's reign. And it doesn't go to France. It doesn't go to the Netherlands. It goes to Ireland, right? But at that point, Elizabeth takes it upon herself to issue a proclamation in Ireland that says that there are rumors that I plan to conquer Ireland. And she says, in effect, how can I conquer what is already mine? And that's a very interesting. So for Elizabeth, this is just a rebellion. For hundreds of years, as historians, we have thought of this as the apex, the zenith of the Tudor conquest of Ireland. But that's not how Elizabeth saw it. She saw this as a rebellion and this a confederacy of Irish Gaelic lords centered in the northwest of Ireland. But really, it was a national movement, to be sure. They had allied themselves with the Catholic powers of Spain. And all of the mistakes the Tudors had made for the entire century in Ireland really manifest in this war, even down to the earldom of Tyrone. Shane O'Neill is long destroyed. Con Bothlech O'Neill is long dead. But it is Hugh O'Neill. Earl of Tyrone, who changes sides. He casts off his title, this English title, and readopts this ancient Gaelic title of the O'Neill. And it nearly bankrupts Elizabeth. It nearly bankrupts her. She spends millions, something two million pounds throughout this war. They pour men and money and material into Ireland, devastating the place. And yet it wasn't a conquest. So this Depends on how we define it. As a modern person, you could say that this is a conquest. But that's certainly not how Elizabeth thought of it. And this wasn't quite reform either. This was a rebellion. As far as she was concerned, I just did an article not too long ago that in 1589, after the defeat of the Armada, of the Spanish Armada, they had a great Thanksgiving celebration in London and throughout the Kingdom of England. It was this great moment of national unity. Elizabeth tries to do this in 1589 in Ireland as well. And it doesn't go particularly well and is no moment of national unity. But that they should try in 1589, I think, gives us a window on Elizabeth's mind that this is a place that is not perfect, but she's doing her best, and that the Nine Years' War is something of an anomaly. 
It's a rebellion, and it's not something that had been building. It's something that is unique to the circumstances of the 1590s. But this was crucial. This was a pivotal moment in European history, as well as in Elizabeth's reign and in Irish history. And from the point of view of the O'Neill, to give him his Irish title, and for those who were resisting the English, was an important part of that Irish national mythology, if I can put it like this, or nationalist mythology, the sense of religious difference, that Elizabeth is supporting a Protestant church and that in Ireland there's a loyalty to Rome. Well, that's what O'Neill certainly wanted us to think. He certainly espouses all of that. Whether he did that simply to get Spanish troops, and if I can paraphrase when Essex, the Earl of Essex, is in Ireland, he's meant to fight O'Neill, but he doesn't. And this is really very concerning for Elizabeth. So he meets O'Neill famously in the middle of the stream alone, and they talk for a half hour. And what was reported back about that meeting was that when O'Neill says, I have pledged my support to the Catholic Church, Essex says to him, thou carest as much for religion as I carest for my horse. So we don't know, was O'Neill a committed Catholic? And that's what he wanted us to believe. Or did he do this to curry favor with Spain? And another part too, did he do this to curry favor with the English of Ireland? the people we mentioned before who lived in the Pale, in the cities and in the towns, who were of English extraction, but who were Catholic. The Protestant Reformation did not make many inroads among that community. So O'Neill's motivations, there are several. It's interesting to think about some of these key characters in Tudor history from the point of view of the Irish. Walter Raleigh comes to mind, for example, glamorous Elizabethan, and yet from the Irish point of view, presumably seen primarily as the perpetrator of the Smoak Massacre. Yes, we have an expression, or there is an expression in the south of Ireland that mothers would say to their children, you know, instead of being afraid of the boogeyman or being afraid of a monster, they would say, in there, Raleigh, beware of Raleigh, because of his bloody history in the south of Ireland. Finally, I don't suppose we can talk about Ireland without thinking about the relationship between England and other kingdoms. Ireland is often referred to as England's first colony. Do you think we should or can draw a line between attitudes to Ireland and ideas about Wales or about the New World? A lot of work has been done on this. There's been a lot of thought put into it, and it is fascinating. This idea that Ireland is the laboratory for empire. And there are certainly similarities with the way particularly Elizabethan adventurers, soldiers, dealt with the native Irish in Ireland and what ultimately happens with Native Americans. So there is certainly some broad similarities there, but we also need to point out the differences. It is really very rare under the Tudors, for example, that they would refer to the Irish as not having any god at all, as being a pagan. They may have the wrong god, but Native Americans, for example, they could agree that these people were pagans, that they were not Christian of any kind. Irish people may be the wrong kind of Christian or lapsed Christian or not very good at Christianity, but it's very rare that you refer to them as being pagan. Another thing that I think is important too, particularly in our modern racialized world, is that it needs to be said that for Irish people do not racially in the Tudor period look different to English people. So you can pour through the evidence and look for references to Irish men who are small or short or big ears or blue-eyed or brown-eyed. There's nothing like that. Instead, there is discrimination by the way they wore their hair, 
how men wore their beards, the clothing they wore, whether they wore shoes or not. All of those things obviously can be changed, right? Whereas someone who is in sub-Saharan Africa or someone who is in North America, just by dint of their skin color, by dint of their race, they could be discriminated against or just simply distinguished from Englishmen. It was not so in Ireland. Is there any truth to the idea that in the 1530s, Henry VIII prescribed beard wearing in Ireland? Yes, and you had to wear your beard as an Englishman, right? You had to shave your upper lip. But this was something that went back centuries, that Englishmen wore their beards in a certain way. Irishmen also seemingly wore their hair long on top and pulled back of some kind. They called it a coulomb, a kind of a, it literally means like back in Irish. And sometimes Irishmen wore a fringe of hair, which would cover their eyes. So one had to have their hair cut like an Englishman. But this is really very telling when we try to look at the Irish experience and then to compare it with experiences in different parts of the world. Because yes, Ireland was very different than England, but not nearly as different as North America was, for example, or Sub-Saharan Africa or Asia, for example. Well, our time together has flown by. This has been utterly fascinating, an amazing overview of the Tudors in Ireland. And if you're accepted, I'd love to come back and talk to you about some of these areas in more depth in the future. Thank you so much. All the best, Nell. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and please rate rank bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.